Hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, uh, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, it's in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. If you use something like the Version app on your phone, uh, you can turn there. If you want to use the, one of the Bibles around the room on the floor, it's page 679. And we're going to look at a number of different passages today, but if you want to stay uh, located in one place in your Bible, Matthew 7 uh, is a good page uh, to hold today as we continue in week three. Uh, of this series that we're in called Asking for a Friend. We're talking about different questions of faith uh, that you've thought about, uh, questions that have come up in different conversations that you've been a part of, and maybe when these questions come up, you think to yourself, you know what, I've always wondered about that too and maybe been afraid to ask. Well, today I want to look at a question that emerges out of Matthew chapter 7. These are some well-known words by Jesus. In fact, if you walk up to the average person on the street today uh, and ask them to recall one verse from the Bible, even if they know little to nothing about the Bible, chances are many will quote some variation of these words. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, here's what Jesus says. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, ironically, this verse, which many people love to quote, is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied scriptures in all of the Bible, and yet so many will use this verse to silence anyone who has anything negative to say about sin, or uh, dare you say anything alternative about something like uh, adultery or abortion or homosexuality, gossip or slander, you can be sure that someone will remind you that Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. And so, uh, why are these, here's a question I think we need to start with right away. Why are these words so well known? All right, why do so many people, even those that have had nothing ever to do with the church, so familiar with these words? I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, The first one that I would point to is just say this, it's my fault, and it's your fault. It's our church, uh, all churches. I mean, as Christians, I've not always done the best job at representing Jesus. Uh, we, We haven't done the best job of representing Jesus. Uh, In Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons' book, Unchristian, they cite a national survey which found that 87% of young adults in America today would say that the term judgmental accurately uh, describes present-day Christianity. And to me, that's humbling. Uh, It's very humbling. And whether or not it's completely true, it's the perception. And like it or not, then we bear some responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ for this as we have not always done the best job at representing Jesus to the people around us. And for those reasons, we need to confess of our sins, uh, especially when we've been inappropriately judgmental uh, or unloving towards others. But I think there's something else that we also have to know in that, and that is part of the reason why words like these are so well known, is that we live in an increasingly intolerant culture, which is ironic, really, when you think about it, because the same popular culture that demands tolerance is becoming increasingly tolerant, intolerant of Christians and really of the message of the church today. And I just think that comes from the reality that we live in a world that for the most part rejects any form of moral absolutes whatsoever. And so it's not uncommon to hear things like, who are you to say what is right and wrong? Uh, what is right for you might not be right for me, or what you, is wrong for you might not be wrong for me. Or think about how often uh, you or I or maybe our kids are encouraged by things, you know, be who you are, become whoever you want to be. Whenever you want, you can, can become. It's, it's all up to you. In fact, I think the late professor, Alan Bloom, almost prophetically in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, said it well. He said, there is no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. 
Uh, he said these words back in 1989. I think he had some sort of idea. I think he saw some things that were coming. And so I just tell you all that to say, is it any wonder then that these words of Jesus in Matthew 7 are so well known and yet, as we're going to see today, also misunderstood? And so we've got to ask the question then, what did Jesus mean by these words? Like, how do we really get to the heart of what he intended for us and what it means for us today uh, as followers of Jesus? Let, let me start out by pointing, at least, let me, let me start by pointing out what I don't believe Jesus meant by these words, like what he didn't mean by these words. Like, I just say Jesus wasn't against moral discernment. You can't make that argument. He wasn't saying that it's wrong to think critically, to, to discern, discern right from wrong, good from evil, sin from righteousness. And I know at the same time that Jesus wasn't asking us in any way as Christians to go, under, uh, to go undercover uh, with our faith, to, to never have an opinion about anything or to speak up regarding what we believe to be best. And so what do you have got to keep in mind with a, a, a passage like this, a word like this, is that we, we must realize that what Jesus said here in Matthew chapter 7 was given as a larger part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is actually Matthew 6, or 5, 6, and 7. It covers three chapters in Matthew alone, and this was given at least over the course of a day. I don't believe that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount in 30 to 40 minutes as we attempt to do uh, on a Sunday, but these are most likely individual messages that he gave over the course of a day, but virtually all of the Sermon on the Mount, both preceding and following this text, is based on the assumption that as followers of Jesus, we are expected to discern right from wrong, uh, to discern between good and evil, and that we are to make a difference in this, in this world. Like Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he says, you are the salt of the earth. He goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill or a town on a hill can't be hidden. Uh, he continues in Matthew 5, verse 17, especially regarding God's law, which can be found in the Old Testament, you know, and continuing on with Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus said this, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And if you continue reading Matthew chapter 5 and 6, you'll find that Jesus had a lot to say about things like hatred and sexual sin and divorce and the way that we treat others. Uh, carry on to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as Jesus was speaking about uh, eternity with God and, and what we should keep in mind about this. It was Jesus that said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so as you scan these words, even for yourself, you'll discover that Jesus says, you know, that we are as a church and as Christians to be different than this world and to pursue righteousness and to avoid being like hypocrites. And again, all of these are found within the same context of don't judge or you too will be judged. Look at some other places where Jesus said similar words uh, about sin and confrontation and judgment. John chapter 7 verse 24, it was Jesus that said, stop judging by mere appearances but instead judge correctly. Uh, over in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, in regards to Christians confronting one another, holding each other accountable, it was Jesus that said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
Let me just show you a few more, a few other examples in the New Testament. It was the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16 that said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice, Paul says, because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll look at this verse again in just a moment, uh, the apostle Paul heard about some sexual sin that had entered the church in Corinth. And so he writes to them with some instructions. And he wrote saying, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, he says, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus as the one who has been doing this. He goes on in Titus chapter 3 to address those who are creating trouble in the church, those who are being... Uh, uh, creating division, trying to rip the church apart. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And then finally, in regards to false teaching, all right, and there's plenty of evidence where Paul says, you got to look out. Jesus said, you got to look out for false teachers. Paul says, as, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you other, uh, a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Looks to me kind of stands face to face or in opposition, you know what, to what Jesus said. But the reality is this, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God issues one command about sin and obedience after another. See, God despises sin. And Jesus too, and I, again, I just wanted you to see a handful of examples where Jesus and others make a clear distinction between sin and righteousness and good and evil and things like repentance and confession and forgiveness are clearly represented all through Scripture. And so when Jesus said, do not judge, he was not lowering the bar on sin and the seriousness of sin in our world and in our lives. He wasn't commanding us to not exercise moral judgment or to even keep quiet on matters influencing our culture today. But the question that we've got to wrestle with is, what are we to make of Jesus' words? Like, what does he have for us here? What does this mean even in 2018? Well, again, it's important for us to realize that Jesus shared these words in Matthew 7 in the midst of his most famous Sermon on the Mount. And with these key messages, Jesus was actually painting a picture for us of God's ideal kingdom here on this earth, a kingdom where God is judge. Jesus is king, and we as Christians, well, we are citizens of this kingdom, and we have a very specific role to play, and it's a picture of heaven, really, when you look at it, of heaven on earth and what can happen when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and we love our neighbors as ourselves each and every day. So here's what I want to do with our remaining time. I want to dig in a little bit deeper for a few minutes, not only with this one verse in Matthew, but we've also got to look at the verses that are following because they make up a big part of what I think Jesus is getting at for us here in Matthew 7. So Matthew chapter 7 again, let's start in verse 1. Let me read through verse 5 for you. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck 
from your brother's eye. Now, right away, I want to just call your attention. The word judge here comes from the Greek word krino, all right? And it means to evaluate or to analyze. And it's a tricky word to understand in that it can be used in at least a couple of different ways in the New Testament. First of all, it can be used as a way of discerning between good and bad, all right? Between good and evil. It's this level of moral discernment that I've already made reference to. But secondly, it can also be used to describe the role a judge plays in issuing a verdict or a punishment on someone else. And as we've already seen, Jesus rendered strong judgment judgment of others. Take his disciples, for example. I mean, he on more than one occasion called them out uh, for their, their wrong ways. And, and if you look at his life, too, if you study his life day to day, there are all sorts of different encounters that he had with men and women that he barely knew, where he distinguished for them the difference between right and wrong. And so here's what I want to just say right up front. I don't think the moral discer- that moral discernment is what Jesus is getting at here for us and forbidding in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, but rather judgment as condemnation. And what he is prohibiting is this judgment as com- condemnation. And here's what I mean. He- he's warning people like you and me from taking on the position of God and condemning someone else. He's prohibiting a self-righteous, self-serving, hypocritical judgment of other people. And Luke chapter 6 provides even greater clarity in this. If you look at Luke's version, his telling of the Sermon on the Mount, which is much more concise, he actually records Jesus' words this way. In Luke chapter 6 verse 37, Jesus said, do not judge and you will not be judged. And then Luke includes, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. And then he adds, forgive and you will be forgiven. And so I think ultimately what we've had to consider today again is what what did Jesus have in mind for us as followers of Christ when he said, do not judge or you will be judged? And when we read it in its context, I think there are a few takeaways for us. If you're taking notes, the first one that I'd call out is just say this. I think Jesus is saying, hey, you need to let God be God. Uh, You need to let my father play the role of the God of all of this earth. God has a part to play. You and I have a part to play. And at no time is it yours or my responsibility to condemn others. That is to make a judgment on the personal worth or eternal condition of someone else. We don't get to play that part. But gratefully, thankfully, God will be the judge. He will be the judge for how each person has spent their life here on this earth. And as Jerry talked about last week, he alone, God alone will determine the eternal destiny of every person. See, when we judge, when we take on this role of judge as the one who condemns, we're declaring that a person has no worth that they have no value, that they don't matter to God. And the problem so often with our judging is that it reflects even our own ignorance about our own sinfulness. And so if verse 1 is the prohibition, verse 2 is a continued warning. Verse 2, he says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so Jesus is saying the same thing with two words now, this word judge and this word measure. He knows that no human Jesus knows that no human can live up to the standards of God on their own, that no no level of good from your life or my life can make us better in the eyes of God, that it's Christ in our lives that makes all the difference. It's Jesus Christ in us that changes, it changes everything. And that's the beautiful thing about what Jesus accomplished for us and for this world on the cross, that there is no sin too great. There, There is no life so lost that Jesus can rescue anyone. He can redeem any person. 
in this world. And so Jesus warns us, he, he warns us people to stay out of the condemning business, all right? We, we are not to judge and condemn. God will judge, and one day he will judge every person on this earth according to whether or not they trusted Jesus Christ with their salvation. And so in the meantime, our part is to live and to agree with God that every person you ever meet or come in contact was worth Jesus dying for. That indeed he is like the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep behind to go find and discover the one lost sheep. Every life matters to God and matters to Jesus Christ. And so it should at the same time for us as well. Should matter to us too. Something else we learn from these words from Jesus, especially for those of us who want to follow him, uh, is this. It's to be aware of the sin in your life. I think that's another takeaway from this passage. To be aware of your own personal sin and don't tolerate it. All right, don't get cozy uh, with it in any way. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the two-by-four in your own eye, all right? Like, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, I get it, and I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes we get so comfortable and complacent about our own sin, and yet we've got this amazing ability to see it in others so well. Isn't it true? Or we excuse certain behaviors, or we'll, we'll categorize sin. We'll call some greater and some lesser than others. Look at it like this. I, I imagine standing on the street uh, in the heart of New York City. All right, and as you stand on the street in the heart of New York City and you look all around you, there's buildings of all shapes and sizes, and some of them literally touch the clouds at times. And so we, we have that perspective of measuring the greater and the lesser. But imagine that same view, only this time from the perspective of 35,000 feet. You're in a plane and you're looking down on the city of New York. From that perspective, you don't distinguish between the buildings, between their sizes and their shapes. And I think there are so many times that we do the same with sin. We'll look at them from our own human perspective and we'll judge these as greater and these as, as lesser when in reality, from God's perspective, it's all sin. It's all sin in God's eyes. And so Jesus warns us from becoming so focused on the sin of others that we might not even consider our own or maybe more easily let ourselves off the hook. And he calls out, he uses the word hypocrisy. He warns us from becoming hypocrites because when we live hypocritical lives, instead of people being drawn to our faith or being drawn to our Savior, they can actually be pushed away. I mean, we see this, we see this played out in so many different ways. I think about how it gets played out in families or have you ever seen this as parents? I've been guilty of this. Like you might tell your kids to live this way or that way uh, as a way of correcting them from time to time. You might point to the Word of God, which is a great way to help provide instruction to your kids, but we'll say, hey, look, look what God's word has to say for us, and so you need to change your way in this. But our kids aren't stupid, right? And so we might say one thing, but if they see areas in our life that we're unwilling to address or we continue in without ever acknowledging our fault, well, I'm just fearful that at times we might do more harm to our kids in their faith by never acknowledging our own, our own sin, our own mistakes. And so you could say that Jesus is challenging us really to make looking into a mirror every day uh, a discipline, just a part of a discipline in your life and in my life, because doing so has the potential to make you more aware of your own sin and produce humility in us 
And, and if you do this, and if you make looking into the mirror a, a regular part, a, a regular habit for you, you know, and, and if in any way you're saying, well, I'm not seeing anything, like, you know, I, I got this all figured out, well, either you might need a new mirror, right, or you might want to make sure you've got some people in your life who love you enough to encourage you and support you, but also love you enough to correct you. And I think part of that personal reflection for us that we can find other examples in Scripture, you know, might, well, it may be, it might, we might do well to ask questions of ourselves like these, like, am I humble? Is God producing humility in me? Do I, do I regularly confess my sin to others and, and before God? Or, or maybe ask yourself, you know, is the way I see others coming out of a deep love for Jesus? Or am I finding victory over anything in my life? Or maybe do I have a story of God's grace at work in me and, well, do I believe that what he's done in me that he might be able to accomplish in somebody else? Because as Paul says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need Jesus because it's only Jesus that can save us from our sin. Only Jesus, only the Holy Spirit can help us grow in our walk with the Lord each day. And the more and more we stay humble, the more and more we realize that we need Jesus. And the more we're able to extend grace and love as we realize we have received that same grace and love. And so here's what we've established so far. Jesus says, don't judge, don't condemn. Again, it's his way of saying, let God do his part. But don't overlook or get comfortable with the sin in your life either, but confess your sins and make it a daily effort to live a holy life. And as we do these things, right, as we keep these things in check, as we stay humble and really seek to live for the Lord, here's what we can do for one another as Christians and as a church. The third takeaway is this, that we can encourage and help one another overcome sin and love. In fact, we have a responsibility in doing just this. Again, Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So see, here's the part that we can play for one another. As we're walking in Christ, as we're staying in humble staying humble, as we're looking in the mirror and even reflecting on our own lives, we have an opportunity and really a responsibility to encourage one another and pray for each other and hold each other accountable. Like you can imagine some of these conversations. It doesn't necessarily mean they're easy, but to be able to look someone in the eyes that you've got a relationship with and say, hey, I've just noticed that there's something different about you. Like there's something different about your attitude or I've been sensing more and more criticism in you or cynicism in you when you used to be so full of joy. Or, or you know what, can I just ask a question about your marriage right now? Because it just, it maybe looks like that you guys aren't on the same page or something. Sure, a relationship must exist. There, there's got to be trust and, and effort in a relationship like that, but there's got to be humility. And, and we should pray in going into those kinds of relationships. But, but part of the responsibility that we have as followers of Christ and as a church is to confront one another in love. And, and we can hold each other accountable so that we can grow and we can grow together. I don't know how many of you stayed home this past Monday to watch the Boston Marathon. 
Um, I'm guessing probably not many of you. I, I didn't, but uh, I did follow it on Twitter. I thought it was kind of fun to just watch the results as I had a couple of friends that were running the race, but uh, uh, these aren't my friends, although I'm sure they're great people. I'd love to be their friends, but Desiree Linden and Shalane Flanagan are two of America's best female runners right now, and uh, American women did an outstanding job at the Boston Marathon this past week. Desiree Linden on the left won the race. She won the women's race, and again, her, her, her teammate Shalane Flanagan, they've been great partners as competitive runners. But there's some really neat stories that have come out of the race. Uh, and, and in fact, the one that I love is that Desiree Linden, just a few miles into the race, uh, whispered over to Shalane Flanagan, hey, I don't have it today. I'm, I'm not going to finish. And so I'll, I'll pace you for a bit, and then I'm going to drop out. Well, she continued on until about halfway through the race, Shalane Flanagan whispered over to Desiree Linden, hey, I got to go to the bathroom which I would just encourage that that happens to professionals as well, that you're out on a run and you've got to use the restroom. But uh, she said, yeah, nature called. And uh, so sure enough, she darted off the course into a porta pot. I thought it was so funny that one reporter commented that he clocked her pit stop at 13.8 seconds, that she was in and out, which is pretty remarkable uh, when you think about it. But what Shalane Flanagan didn't realize is that Desiree Linden waited for her. And realize that, you know what, we can be stronger together. That if we run this race together, all right, we might be able to catch the lead pack again. And then who knows what could come from that. And so they did just that. And Desiree Linden, who initially had thought about dropping out of the race, actually had enough strength to keep going and won the race. The first time a woman had run the, won the race in something like 30 or, or, four, or the, an American woman had won the race in 30 or 40 years. See, as followers of Jesus, we can help one another. And even in the New Testament, there are all sorts of examples about the Apostle Paul talking about life as this race. And together as a church and as followers of Christ, we can encourage one another in this. But our motivation, all right, especially when it comes to speaking into someone else's life, it has to come from a desire to see God's best at work in others. And again, because you've experienced the grace of God, you want to see the power of that grace working in someone else. Now, let me address this question because I think this is really important for us to acknowledge today. Should we ever, as followers of Jesus, correct or confront a non-Christian for the way they choose to live? And I think the answer is no. And from what I can see, it's not our responsibility. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, again, he writes to this church in Corinth, again, a church that found itself in a very immoral culture to address the sexual sin that it's found its way into the church and how it should be handled. And he goes on later to say this in verses 12 and 13. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And so who will judge those outside? God will. And here's the thing for us, when we decide that we are the moral police, that we are the spiritual authority in this world, here's what we often run into. We go out and we try and hold people outside of the church accountable and ask them to live to a standard that none of them ever agreed to live by. Uh, one pastor, Kyle Eidelman, said it like this, he says, judgment is an issue of jurisdiction. And I'm not so sure that we have jurisdiction outside the church. Does it mean we have influence? Yes, we should have influence. 
And there are certainly many examples where we should be speaking into and influencing the culture, but it's not our place to judge people who haven't agreed to live by the Bible or to follow Jesus. And does it mean that we're saying that their behavior is okay? No. But it's not our job to be the spiritual authority. And it doesn't mean that you and I, we won't ever have the opportunity to speak into someone's life, someone outside of the church. There are exceptions, all right? And even as we talk about reaching others and influencing others, all right, we ought to be out doing the work and shining the light and having conversations with others, all right? But we've got to earn that right, all right, to speak into someone else's life and to call out something that we see in them. Like opportunities like that take time and they take trust and they take relationships. And keep this in mind too, people don't just need info. All right, they need an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so as you think about your relationships around you right now with people who aren't following Jesus, consider these. Be a good listener. Listen really well. Seek to understand. Like remember that there might be some people in or around your life right now that you are disgusted by, but if you knew their story, it would break your heart. And if you took the time to love them, there's no telling what God might be able to accomplish in them and what he might want to accomplish in me at the very same time. I like what E.M. Bounds says. He says, before we dare talk to others about God, we need to make sure that we're talking, taking time to talk to God about others. That we're saturating those conversations in prayer. We're praying for others around us. We're patient with the pace of God in other people's lives. And so we let God be God. We keep touch with our own sin. We encourage and help one another overcome sin and love. And then one more verse before we close that falls into the context of what Jesus is saying that we haven't looked at yet. Verse 6, Jesus continues, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, first of all, what's the pearl here? Well, this is a reference to the good news about Jesus Christ, all right? The gospel message that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this isn't some cheap imitation pearl. It's a treasure, all right? It's priceless. Jesus realizes that it can change any life. And so if you're in Christ today, you've got that very pearl inside of you. And as a follower of Jesus, you and I, were responsible for sharing that pearl with others. And so what's Jesus getting at here? And talking about pearls and pigs and pooches and stuff. Like, has he got something against dogs? Like, well, remember, in this culture, people didn't have dogs as pets. All right? And so in this particular culture, his listeners knew that he wasn't trying to be cruel or harsh, but because dogs and pigs had no particular place in culture, I mean, dogs were only known for just ripping things apart. They were a nuisance. Pigs would trample anything of immense worth. And so to a dog or a pig, a pearl had no value. And so again, what's Jesus getting at here? Well, I like what Scott McKnight says. He's a theologian, professor, and writer. He says, what this text teaches us is that we have to learn when to speak and when to walk away. And sometimes walking away is the most gospel honoring thing we can do. Like the answer isn't always, well, you know what? I'll go post something on social media. But it's to walk away, to be quiet, to be a person of peace and love. And so he recognizes that living in the world is a challenge. Jesus recognizes that living in the world is a challenge. We're going to meet resistance. Following Jesus isn't going to be easy, especially when our culture says we are judgmental. And there have been way too many occasions where this is true. And I've judged and we've judged. But as McKnight explains, the truth is much of the uproar about Christians being judgmental 
never gets beyond the simple observation that as Christians, because we turn to the Bible and seek to practice it, think certain things are right and wrong, good and evil, wise and unwise. And while we may be called judgmental, what is really being demonstrated at times is an intolerance for another way of seeing things. And let's not forget that this is a spiritual battle either. And the enemy isn't other people. The enemy is the evil one who has blinded the eyes of many from understanding the good news about Jesus. And so no matter how difficult it may be, no matter what others may say about us, it doesn't change the part that we have as followers of Jesus. The last thing is that we represent Jesus to this world. You and I, to your friends, to your family, to your classmates, to the people that you work with, to your neighbors. We represent, as followers of Jesus, we represent Jesus to this world. We're citizens of heaven, and that's not a small task. And perhaps, perhaps the best example for how to live out the words of Matthew chapter 7 can be demonstrated in what we read about Jesus at the end of John chapter 7 and the beginning of John 8. And I just want to read that for you as we close here this morning. And just pray and ask the Lord to maybe give us a picture of what it looks like for me, what it looks like for you to be Jesus, to represent Jesus to the people that we come in contact with each day. Here's what John records. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until, get this, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, and Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. And it was John that said that Jesus will come full of grace and truth. And the question that we got to wrestle with is, what does it mean in this world today to be full of grace and truth? to model and represent Jesus every day to the people that we come in contact with, to give all glory and attention to him, to tell the story of what he's doing in my life and in our lives, and to pray for people and to shine light into dark places, all right, and to call out hatred when you see it and things like sexism and racism and to say there's no place for this in the church and in our world and in the culture that we find ourselves in today and to be people of truth, but again, of grace all at the same time and to have accountability around us to make sure that we're never becoming judgmental in a way that we were never intended to be. 
And even as we look at that story today for some of you, and I'm just thinking of some of you that maybe you find yourself here today and you think you got nowhere else to turn. No one in your corner right now. Not sure how to deal with your past or your present. Maybe like that woman to realize that Jesus is the only one left. And he's everything you need. He's all we need. And he loves you and he gave his life for you. And he can change everything for you as you seek to turn your life over to him. Let's pray together. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would help us each day to be full of grace and to be full of truth. As we desire and want to live like Jesus and represent him well to others around us, God, and I pray that you would keep us humble. I pray that we can be an encouragement and provide accountability for one another. And I pray as we go out each day that we can be light and hope and share the news of Jesus as you would open up doors for us to do just that. And I pray for those here today that maybe find themselves at the end with nowhere to turn and even in the story that we looked at just a moment ago, that they might discover this morning that here today they can meet Jesus and he changes everything. We help us to see that we have everything that we need in him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.